long ago, in a land far away, there once rose an empire that stretched from the steppes of China to the shores of the Mediterranean. That empire was Persia. Welcome to Now Playing Podcast Review of Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time. Family. The bond between brothers, that is the sword that defends our empire. I pray that that sword remains strong. Part of Now Playing's video game movie review series. I'm ready for this. I'm not. Hosted by Arnie. A boy whose blood wasn't noble, but whose character was a king in spirit. Justin. You know what they say about men with big swords? And Stuart. They may not be much for manners, but they're pretty handy in a fight. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Why would I go when I knew it was so dangerous? Listener discretion is advised. You tell me everything. No more games, no more lies. Today we're discussing Prince of Persia. The Sands of Time. Starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Gemma Arterton, Ben Kingsley, Alfred Molina. Directed by Mike Newell. This is your Prince of Podcasting. Like sand through the hourglass, these are the podcasts of our lives, and this is Arnie. And Stuart. And this is Justan. Justan! We picked you up as a little orphan boy, oh, about a year ago, playing video game movies, and we're still doing it. We've reached the year 1989. I remember that year very well. Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire, and <laughs> that's your go-to. It was the year of Billy Joel, wasn't it? But I didn't have an Apple IIe, so I wasn't playing Prince of Persia. Or I had ever really heard of this property until I was in a movie theater in 2010. I had no idea this was a game. You know what's funny is, through all of this, I never thought I'd be the go-to guy on a game, but this game was my jam. I don't know, I mean, I didn't pick it out. It just was something my dad must have picked up and installed on our computer. Because I played this game so much that I was excited when I saw this on the schedule. I'm like, ooh, I never saw the movie. I wonder if it's the same as this game I loved. And yeah, we'll get into that. But <laughs> well, I did my homework. I felt like I needed to catch up. So not only did I join Arnie for playing several iterations of the game, it should be said there was an initial trilogy in the 90s. And then I think this movie is more inspired by the games that came out in the 2000s. There was another trilogy that started in, I think, 2003. But I also picked up the book by the creator, Jordan Mechner. I guess I'll call it a book. He self-published his diary at the time that he was developing Prince of Persia. And what's kind of unique about it, I'm kind of fascinated about the way movies and computer games intertwine. He was an aspiring filmmaker who used a Bolex camera to film his brother and himself and some other actors and actually digitized that and put it in the game. That was the breakthrough there. I think that's what drew me to this game it wasn't the genre it wasn't the fact that i became a fan of the franchise prince of persia it was the fact that it was a rotoscoped graphic platformer that looked better than any game i'd ever played i mean it was kind of like pitfall but with way more frame rate and way more control over what you were doing on screen See, Prince of Persia is a game that I was well aware of because it was ranked number one on a lot of best game of all time lists, if you can believe that. What? Yeah. It did not sell well when it came out initially. No. 
It well, partly was because he developed it for the Apple IIe when that was going away. They were rushing to try and get it converted to PC and other game platforms, and it did eventually find that success, but a few years after 1989. Right. It came out, it sold okay, and as you mentioned, it was programmed by just one person. It's so funny to think back in the 80s when that was the case, when you could actually have a game programmed by one person, but that was mostly the case for a lot of those early games. Not only that, but like it was his hobby. Like He was really trying to be a filmmaker. He's like, oh, I'm just doing this game things in the meantime until I become a filmmaker. (laughs) He really did hit on something with this game. I mean, I wouldn't say I was there day one. I'm guessing it was probably 90, 91 by the time I was sitting down playing it. But I got to tell you, it was one of these games that I logged a lot of hours on. I remember specifically, we had this really janky peripheral joystick that, you know, was kind of spring-loaded and never really wanted to stay centered. And this (laughs) is one of those games where where you are on the screen is very important to what's going to happen next. There's a lot of times where you need to jump from one platform across a chasm to another one. And if your toe isn't exactly on the perfect pixel, you're going to miss. And so I, I remember just doing this game level by level over and over and over again. For those who haven't played, let me just describe it. Because I did load it up on my Raspberry Pi emulator for Nintendo. And... If you've seen that YouTube video, which I showed Stuart, of like the most frustrating game ever, it's out for the iPhone where you just watch this person die and die and die again trying to make these jumps. That's how I felt playing Prince of Persia for the (laughs) Nintendo. I then found a YouTube video that compared all, I think it's 18 versions of Prince of Persia, and it turns out only the Apple II version and the PC version are at all playable because of control problems. If you played it for the Genesis, Super Nintendo, Nintendo, whatever, mostly the controls were so screwed up that as you said, Justin, you couldn't get the jumps timed right. But picture a two-dimensional, and by that I mean like Donkey Kong or the original Super Mario Brothers, a two-dimensional Tomb Raider, where it's all jumping puzzles and once in a great while you have a sword fight. (laughs) Yeah, I think your comparison to Pitfall is an apt one. That was one of Atari 2600's best games. And if you know that system, you should know that game. But it was much better than Raiders of the Lost Ark for Atari. And yeah, you swung on vines, you jumped over quicksand, you avoided snakes. And this had similar things. I don't know. I didn't get very far in the game because, yeah, I just couldn't make the jumps. I saw the whole game through thanks to somebody on YouTube. And I played it on the PC. I did finally find an emulator. And I got through a couple of sword fights at least. I got to level two or three and I played the sequels a little bit, but it's really a puzzle game in the form of an action game because you do have to be just standing on the exact right block and then hit the right button to jump or you have to do these little steps and it's just a matter of you go you figure out oh this is where the floor falls out under me and then you play it again and now you know that's the spot and you have 60 minutes only because there's a plot around it is the king is gone and the evil jafar yes jafar as in aladdin this came out before (laughs) then they weren't ripping anybody off is telling the princess, you have one hour to marry me or I will kill you. The princess is like, but no, I love another. And that is your character who, if you rescue her within the 60 minutes before Jafar kills her, marries her, thus becoming the prince of Persia. She's the princess. So it's your goal to become the prince by rescuing the princess. Kind of Mario-y in that you're doing a lot of running and jumping, but... 
It's more puzzle-based than that. The second one had a lot more sword fights going on and added some mysticism like flying Medusa heads. The third one, and they didn't come out that often. That's the real weird thing is because Prince of Persia sold so little at first, it took four years for the sequel to come out. And then six years on top of that before the part three came out, Prince of Persia 3D came out in 1999. I was well aware of that. And then... By that point, it was just called a Tomb Raider ripoff because they went 3D and it's all these jumping puzzles in these chasms and everybody's like, yeah, it's like Tomb Raider, but not as good. The company was kind of going out of business at that time. They released it unfinished. And then as Stewart said, they rebooted it in 2003. Those games are fun. I hooked up my PS3 and played them. There's a lot of jumping. It's almost like a Spider-Man game. You're crawling over the walls and everything. If you had a red and blue suit, I would have bought those games when they were new. Yeah, as a Tomb Raider fan, I totally endorsed that Sands of Time trilogy and the Forgotten Sands, which was the game that came out the same year as this movie. It was kind of timed. It didn't really look like Jake Gyllenhaal, but I feel like they knew what the movie was going to look like, and it was time to capitalize on that blockbuster success, because yes, they thought this movie was going to be as big as Pirates of the Caribbean. What's really funny is, as we discussed with Tomb Raider, the game, when it rebooted in 2008 got so far away from all those jumping puzzles, whereas Prince of Persia just embraced it. The whole thing is, where am I jumping to next? <laughs> like I said, I didn't really follow the franchise beyond the first game, but what I really liked about it is it introduced at least me, if not the video game world at large, to some tropes that would become very well known in the world of video games. You know, you'd run into a screen and as that page loaded, it would visually give you a hint of what you needed to do. Like if there's a platform that you need to hit, it kind of shook just a little bit to let you know that there was something to do there. You know, so things like that I hadn't played before. That really enthralled me, but I guess not enough to follow the franchise all the way through. Did the name Prince of Persia carry itself this far, or were there just games that kind of felt like this that they wanted to slap a name that did well in the past on? No, it was definitely that name that kept it going. Again, that first game, when people discovered it, it's kind of like the Citizen Kane of games where the masses didn't play Prince of Persia 1, but the critics loved it. And so it carried the name for a long time. And the original one was done by Broderbund, which is a company that I played a lot of games by. And then they were bought by Ubisoft, who was making these for the PlayStation 2 and PlayStation 3. It's actually the name that kept me away. I just wasn't interested in turn of the millennium, negative five BC games in the Middle East with people in sand and turbans. I just preferred my video games to be more sci-fi or horror. So the Persia thing kept me from buying the games back then. Well, Meshner said he was inspired a lot by the obvious things. Raiders of the Lost Ark, of course. He's a child of the 80s. But also, he was looking at older films, the Errol Flynn stuff, and Robin Hood, and yeah, the old swashbuckler-type movies. He was very inspired by movies, he wanted to make movies, and maybe the reason why the games were infrequent was that he went to film school and then had the idea that he was going to make Prince of Persia himself in the 90s, that he and some investors got, I think it was up to $25 million together for his directorial debut. If he made the game, he should be able to make the movie. I think we've seen that proven wrong time and again, but it just didn't come through. And I think partly because some of the early video games, <coughs> Super Mario Brothers, didn't play so well. So that movie was never made. And eventually the property, I think when it became a success again in the 2000s, came 
on Disney's radar. Disney wasn't making a whole lot of video game movies, but they were looking for a new swashbuckling franchise once the Pirates trilogy, which, remember, was supposed to be the end of it, came to conclusion. I can almost see it. I mean, based on a video game and loosely based off of the story from the 2003 game, which did have a dagger with sand in it that traveled through time. And video games became more cinematic in the century because the computers had the power to process them and people just kept demanding more and more of their games. And so I could see them Hell, if you could take the frickin' Pirates of the Caribbean ride, where it's yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum and chasing the wench around the bar, and make that a hit movie, I could almost see it. I mean, it's an older time period again, it's swashbuckling, it's swords, it's a little bit of whitewashing, Jake Gyllenhaal doesn't quite look Persian. (laughs) A little bit? I think we'll talk about that. (laughs) Right. There are lots of things that, in retrospect, would point you to say, wow, this was never going to be a big hit, but I think you're right. A pirate movie in 2003 sounded like a disaster. We all were on that retrospective. We all were trepidatious about going to see the movie until we heard how good it was yeah if you get the right elements to make it you can make a western you can make a fantasy film you can make an errol Flynn, thief of baghdad sinbad kind of movie old genres can become new again with the right talent i think what this movie is going to be at least for me is a referendum on the director gore verbinski and the actor johnny depp we can see what they brought to that antiquated pirate genre more clearly when we see other people try to follow in their footsteps. Exactly. This is the first time we're reviewing Jake Gyllenhaal, but man, this guy keeps coming close. He was almost Spider-Man when Tobey Maguire stepped away. He was almost Robin a couple of times. He was almost the new Batman before Batfleck got it. Well, you gotta realize Jake's not even as old as Johnny Depp was when he took the pirate's role. He's got still some time to find his big starring role. But he, like Depp, is a quirky indie guy. He had just done lots of good work in little films. Donnie Darko. Love it. It's got a cult following, but it didn't make an extraordinary amount of money. You wouldn't put the guy in a giant action franchise because he took pills and saw a bunny. (laughs) But yet he got the day after tomorrow. Yeah, I think the difference is, and we'll probably talk about it as we compare the performances, I don't know how to look at Prince of Persia and not compare it to Pirates, is that Gyllenhaal is a more introverted actor. All his performances, Brokeback Mountain, he's a closeted gay man, and Enemy, he barely spoke in the film. So often, he plays characters that are internal, whereas Johnny Depp is big, right? He's waving around his scissor hands. He's going to steal the spotlight. That's not Jake. It never has been. So while they're both cool indie guys, I think you do need a scene stealer in order to make a project like this work. I think you've said it right there. For this movie to have legs, it's going to not only have to follow the model of pirates, but it's going to need to have big charisma to keep us engaged. And I guess the question is, is Jake Gyllenhaal that guy? Or anybody else associated with this. I was looking at the cast, and there's not too many people I know of. Ben Kingsley. As soon as I saw his name come up, I'm like, oh, there's our bad guy. I mean, it's Ben Kingsley. (laughs) 
Right. <laughs> I would argue that Alfred Molina was a bigger character than Jake Gyllenhaal at times. Yeah, he was known for playing Doc Ock. I, he's a character actor, but I think people do know him from the Spider-Man franchise. He pops up here to race some ostriches. Strangely, I think most people know him as the sister Christian loving guy from Boogie Nights. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. was that guy too. <laughs> And again, director, Mike Newell. Gore Verbinski was someone that came from commercials, had a lot of hands-on with special effects and making visual cinema. Mike Newell is a Brit with wit. And Four Weddings and a Funeral, funny film. Donnie Brasco, we're going to talk about it. It's part of our Al Pacino Gangster series. I think the reason why he got this gig was he did do one of the Harry Potters. And personally, I think it's the best one that I ever saw. I didn't see that many Harry Potter films, but Goblet of Fire is probably the most popular book, I'd hazard that guess. And he got to do that movie. You mean he didn't just get this because he did a couple episodes of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles of the 90s? I figured that was a shoe in <laughs> No. I mean, most of his work is like Mona Lisa's smile. I mean, he does character pieces. It's about people that would never pick up a sword working out their problems. So he's not really an action guy is what you're telling me. Not at all, except <laughs> for Harry Potter 4. He went from this to doing Great Expectations. Yeah, the Charles Dickens ones, not the reboot with right. uh, Ethan Hawke. Right. Yeah. That's kind of what you would expect here. It must be why everyone speaks in a British accent. Including Jake Gyllenhaal, who is not British. Uh, neither is any character in this series, but <laughs> I guess they drew the line in subtitles. He's not Persian. He's not British. Let's get him. <laughs> he's perfect. <laughs> and when I sat down to watch this movie, by the way, I knew Jake Gyllenhaal was in it. I didn't pay much attention to this movie coming out in 2010. And when I saw the credits roll, I'm like, wait, where's Steve Zahn? I know Steve Zahn is in this. They made an action figure of Steve Zahn. I thought we were watching Sahara. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that movie where Matthew McConaughey looks like he's dying by bronze tanner. <laughs> I really thought this was going to be a Steve Zahn film. I always liked Steve Zahn as a character actor. I was really looking forward to it. <laughs> I remember being at a big, splashy premiere, like the movie was opening, and I was at a movie theater seeing something else and thinking, wow, what a strange time to release a movie celebrating Persia. I mean, keep in mind, 2010, the Iraq War was coming to a close. It was all but over, as much as you can call it over, but it was not a distant memory. And I just thought that this is going to be a rough sell, rougher than pirates to get Americans intrigued with this. And they used this as the launch of the summer season. I mean, this was coming out in May and, you know, it didn't do very well. It came in behind Sex of the City 2. <laughs> Which also went to Arabia, I believe. <laughs> So I think we've all tipped our hat here. Not going to be as good as Pirates, but let's get into it. Is it going to be one of the better video game movies? That's a low bar. I think he might be able to jump that. Arnie, why don't you give him the plot and we'll see. Jake Gyllenhaal plays Dastin, a natural-born parkour master. At a very young age, Dastin used his agility to save a boy from murderous palace guards, and King Sharaman adopts Dastin for his bravery. Fifteen years later, Dastin, along with his two brothers, both born to the king, Tuss, played by Richard Coyle, and Garciv, played by Toby Kebbell, are planning an attack on the holy city of Alamut, advised by the king's brother Nizam, played by Ben Kingsley. But the entire attack is a ruse. Nizam fooled the three boys into attacking the city so he could steal a magical dagger with the power to turn back time, but only for a minute. 
Nizam wants to go back in time and allow his brother, King Sharaman, to be eaten by a lion so that he, Nizam, can be ruler of Persia. Which I want to point out took many, many, many minutes ago. Like, he needs to really get a lot of sand in that dagger. <laughs> so to turn back that much time requires putting the dagger in a sand glass that has enough magic to turn back years. In this deception, Nizam frames Dastin for the murder of King Sharaman. Why? We'll talk about it. But this causes the boy to flee along with Alamut's ruler, Princess Tamina, played by Gemma Archerton. Tamina wants to return the dagger to its holy place where it cannot be used, but Dastin won't give it up. They're taken by a group of criminals led by Sheik Amar, played by Alfred Molina, but Nizam has hired a cadre of magical assassins, Blackwater, the Hash Anson, to kill Dastin and get the dagger. Dastin convinces both brothers that he's innocent, and immediately both brothers are killed. But he and Tamina find their way into the city and discover this magic hourglass. Tamina falls to her death, but Dastin turns back time to right after the invasion of Alamut. He could have turned it back further, so they didn't invade Alamut, but no, he's going to let all those people die. But his father and dead brothers are resurrected, and then he exposes Nizim's duplicity before anyone can be killed. But only he remembers the adventure he undertook as he begins to romance Tamina to be his first wife as credits roll. So, I mentioned this in the plot summary. I'm just going to put it out there. The entire plot is Ben Kingsley saved his brother the king from a lion when they were children. And he's regretted it ever since because he's not the king. And so he's found this magical dagger, tricked the boys into invading a city. Why do you need to kill the king? You can just <laughs> quietly go down with the dagger and stab the thing and turn back time. Why does this movie need to exist at all? <laughs> not only that, but they have a strange intertitle. We see lots of maps and they play the Middle Eastern music and there's a lot of intertitles about destiny and ancient times. But what I heard in this prologue is that both brothers ruled the Persian Empire. They were both equally powerful, but in the flashback, one's wearing a golden crown and one is Ben Kingsley. <laughs> and I'm sorry, but I can't remember the last time Ben Kingsley played a good character. By hiring Ben Kingsley, if I'm supposed to be like, oh my god, Ben Kingsley's the bad guy? I just, it's the moment he walked on and the scowls he gives from frame one, I'm like, yeah, you evil. Yeah, we see a scene of the guy with the crown holding up his baby. Presumably, he's getting laid. And then we see Ben Kingsley. And we know he's not getting laid. And so, it's okay. I don't need it to be a big twist. But I'm on to this movie very early about, okay, they're going to tell us that this kingdom is ruled by brotherhood. But really, there's animosity between the brothers. And definitely, Ben Kingsley, he's not hiding very well his duplicity. Yeah, I mean, so much so to that point that when Ben Kingsley shows up in Iron Man 3, they flip that on its head. He's supposed to be this big bad guy who we find out is just an actor. <laughs> so that makes it funny in that respect. Yeah, the twist is when he's not the villain right. anymore, and you think he is. One other thing about this prologue, it starts with these words on the screen, and it says, It is said some lives are linked across time, connected by an ancient calling that echoes through the ages. Destiny. All right, now, Assassin's Creed mm -hmm. is actually 
a series that's a spinoff of Prince of Persia. The it first is? Assassin's Creed game was supposed to be a Prince of Persia game where you were protecting the prince from assassins. And the CEO of Ubisoft said, no, if the prince isn't the main character, we're going to make it its other series. Oh, wow. And in Assassin's Creed, I haven't seen the movie, but I've seen the trailers. I've seen the movie. It jumps through time where you're in the past and the present. Uh, so to speak. Yeah, I won't reveal everything, but yes, they move around. And so I honestly thought this was going to be a complete time travel story where we see Jake Gyllenhaal in 5 BC and Jake Gyllenhaal sometime in the future and that lives are linked by destiny. I don't get what this title, which they repeat at the end. It's so important. They have to remind us at the end. But I don't see these lives linked across time because when we do travel in time here, the most we ever go is a day. And I think it's important to point out at this juncture what we're talking about with this time travel or any of that doesn't take place for a good half hour into the movie. Up until this point, it's just kind of some running around, taking over a city, some exposition. Nothing really fantastic going on, much more than what looks to be a period piece. Well, it's the stuff of the gameplay, at least what I got to play of the game. A lot of where you spend your time, maybe eventually you get a cool dagger or some magical talisman, but a lot of what I did was jumping from rooftops and tricking people to fall through floors, and you know, it's a Disney movie, so they gotta start out with a kid. He does not remain a child for very long, but we got this prologue in which we see how Destan started as a humble street urchin who defends his friend Biss, and because because he is defiant, because he's willing to stand down the royal guards, the king witnesses this and says, okay, you're my new son. Why do the guards want to kill the friend? He, I think, ran into the street and made their horse scared and I think dumped one of them. Because nobody steals. I mean, I was expecting young Dastan to be like, one step ahead of the bad guy, one flip, and it's no joke. These guys don't appreciate I'm broke. I really thought we were in Aladdin here. But they show him paying for his apple. And so I'm like, wait, nobody stole shit. Why are you cutting the head off? Yeah, I think they got in trouble with Aladdin. I mean, I do remember they were like the opening song is like, they'll slice your throat and kill you. I'm like, they didn't want to portray the Middle East as bestial, I think, this time. And so we have wholesome kids. They look more like newsies, right? <laughs> They're just out on the street trying to make their way, paying with their little coins. And no, they just get caught up in traffic. And so that's the excuse. <laughs> that they use for sending Dastan Child up on the roof to do some... I already knew I was in trouble. This is a beautiful, expensive movie, and the backdrop of mosques and all of that looks great. But you could just tell, when they insert those jumping scenes and all of that, it's like shot by different people with different lighting. It, they don't match. It doesn't feel integrated into the movie. Oh, very much so. It, it's jarring at times. Like, the slow motion scenes almost feel as if they're on video, the way they're choppy and just... They they pull you out, juxtaposed against this beautiful yellow-toned film that we're watching. We get these jarring action sequences that just don't seem to fit in the same world that we're supposed to be building up. No, it, it actually, honest to God, looks better in the 2010 game than it does in this 2010 movie. The fact that it's all this parkour, I understand it's very much like the later games and things, but it really stands out when you see a human doing it, especially the child doing it back then, that he's so young and instantly has all these moves to run across 
across the roofs and everything. It's just a little bit crazy of a superpower for a young child to have. And it's even more unbelievable. And this isn't from any of the games. In many of the games, the first three games form a trilogy where you married the princess. The next three games, you are the son of a king. None of the games have it. You're the street urchin who the king says, that boy's got spunk. I have two sons, but there's always room for one more. He has no wife, but he has two sons. I don't know what happened to mom. Yeah. (laughs) And it sets up this dynamic in which he is the same and yet not. That separate but equal quality of the brother. Obviously, the eldest bloodline brother is going to be the next king. That's Tuss. We're going to jump ahead 15 years. And he's the one more or less uh, ruling when King... Sharaman is not around. He has taken them away to lead some front in a war we'll never see. It's kind of strange, but they're fighting enemies and they talk about weapons being smuggled to enemies. We never meet those enemies. They never fight those enemies. This is all set around a holy city that the debate is, should they invade it or not, given that it's neutral? And I think this is where it starts to become apparent that there's a few too many characters in this movie. This dynamic that they've set up would work better with one real son and one adopted son. Having this third son in the middle really doesn't do much. It actually kind of clouds the plot at a point when it looks as if Destan may have murdered his father. Agreed. It also, considering that this is the story of brotherhood, the whole theme here, and that we're going to see that Nizam Ben Kingsley doesn't like his brother a lot, it would make sense to have that going in parallel with the biological and the adopted child as well. I think it's a mistake that we never see in adulthood The three brothers getting along, because I felt I knew what to expect, which was almost like the Cinderella scenario where the real royal blood would be noble and everything. And they kind of set it up that way because they're preparing to attack a city, whereas Daston is just doing some kind of street fight for money or something. I don't even ever know what that is. Turkish wrestling, (laughs) I believe, is what he's doing here. But yeah, let's just take a moment and talk about Jake here. First time I can think of that he's being featured in such a big film, given a leading man status. He's a handsome guy, youthful. I could see why they would think he's capable of it. But okay, Johnny Depp got to, like, parody rock stars, and he had a sexy charisma that was kind of based on rock and roll, and that was fun to watch. Jake is, like, chasing Fabio, right? Like, he looks like he's trapped in the worst romance novel cover of all time with this hair and these clothes. He did put on quite a bit of muscle for this role. He got chiseled, but... Yeah, I can't believe it's not butter, but it's not the same kind of cool, right? Romance novel Fabio shirtless hunk is not the same thing as drunken pirate rock star. It's the difference between drawing up something that looks cool and then breathing life into it with an attitude that can match. And sulky emo rock kid in leather sleeveless garb is just not going to carry your movie. I agree. It might look good on a poster. It might look good in your locker. You might be a pinup team star, but this, I think what we're supposed to read between the lines here is that because he was raised in the street, there's still an edginess to him that the more royal bloodline doesn't have. This wrestling and him laughing and talking in that cockney, I think, are our ways of understanding that. But... 
What I never understood is that these brothers actually are good friends and got along. And I think we needed to see that because I instantly am expecting all this animosity between the brothers. And when they're preparing for battle, which is the first time we see the three brothers as adults together or at all, we never see those other two brothers in childhood. It feels like there's some arguments like the one brother... Tuss is, I will go in a first. I draw first blood. You are nothing, Hall. I'm not going to listen to you when Gaston is like, these guys, they don't even think. They're just going to go right for the front gate. I'm going to sneak in. We're going to go in through the side and take them off guard. Gaston has definitely the better strategy going on. And he's being dismissed. Later in the movie, we're going to find out that these three brothers are all like great friends. They got each other's back. I'm with you, bro. But I do not get that from these early scenes, and it's really jarring. That said, I wouldn't want the movie to be longer and establishing that in any kind of 20-minute prologue, right? We can agree that this movie is too long at two hours. And if they went for pirate's length to establish some of these relationships, I'm just not sure it would make much difference. But I hear what you're saying. Yeah, I'm not asking for extended runtime or anything here, but I do feel Arnie on this. I mean, it could have been as simple as a quick conversation overheard as they're marching on the city as the three brothers prepare. Instead of being contentious with one another, on the way there, they could have been buddy-buddy, and then once the plan was put forth, that's where we could start seeing some disagreements or animosity building. So my question is... Dastan basically hatches a plan that nobody else would dare to do and uses his grown-up street urchin friends to achieve it. Are we supposed to be swooning over him? Are we supposed to be laughing with him? Is this supposed to be Depp or is this supposed to be Orlando Bloom? Because I'll buy Jake Gyllenhaal as this movie's Orlando Bloom if we have a Johnny Depp coming in to bring that life that he did 20 minutes into the picture. We do. His name's Alfred Molina. <laughs> Well, that's more than 20 minutes into the picture, and Alfred Molina is not Johnny Depp either. He's got his teeth in this movie, though. I'll tell you, I'm never one to swoon over Jake Gyllenhaal. I mean, I can never get the vision of him in Bubble Boy out of my head where he was just the worst. But during this scene, I'm impressed with somebody who can take crossbow bolts and use them to pull himself up with just his arm strength. It did make me pause this movie to see if crossbows were invented back then. It's iffy because they were invented around 6 BC and this movie's around negative 5 to negative 6 BC. But did you happen to look up the invention of steel? Because they mentioned steel a few times. And I'm pretty sure that's a more modern contrivance of mankind than when this movie's supposed to be taking place. You're right. Uh, the steel came about during the Bronze Age, which is about negative 3000 BC. So they had steel a couple centuries early here, too. And it did start, though, in the East. Okay. But I don't think they had steel tip crossbows that could penetrate stone. But that's not our problem. Our problem is this is not an accurate depiction of Persia. It's what made me pause the film. Uh, okay, it's not my <laughs> problem. My My issue is I don't feel like... This character is more interesting than Orlando Bloom. And while Orlando Bloom was fine for his minimized supporting role, he needs a foil. What I think this movie is going to severely lack is someone with the energy of Depp. Obviously, you can't just carbon copy Pirates of the Caribbean. You have to do different things. But he needs to be able to play off someone because he himself is sort of a cookie cutter hero of yore. 
I get you why you're going to Depp because they did market this. I mean, when Bruckheimer, who is the producer of this, went to Disney, he's like, we got our next pirates. I mean, that was literally the words he said. They thought this would be the one to pick up that torch. But I'm just looking at him as generic action star. It's not Depp that they wanted. You never want generic, though. That's the problem. Like, if he's a generic star, then that's not going to carry this antiquated series. You need someone that's so charming, we don't care that this is an antiquated series. I'm just trying to say, is he able to do the action, though? Is he able to... Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, I'm physically, yeah, he, he fits the mold. You could digitize him and, and I could play him as the character in the game. That's fine. I think he does perfectly fine here. He's not deadly. He's not great. He does nothing to elevate the material. He also does nothing to bring it down. He's as good as what's on the page. And they need more than that because what's on the page is rote. I mean, this stuff, there's not one line of dialogue that made me laugh. There's not one plot twist I didn't see coming a mile away. Even in Pirates. I mean, let's not over-celebrate that movie. It was a mess. They didn't know what the story was going to be. They were constantly rewriting throughout production. We covered that when we covered that series. I suspect it was the same thing on a production this big, done at the same time. What you need are actors that are confident enough in what they're doing to be interesting, even when maybe the plot feels a little bit hamster wheel. That's the exact thing that's lacking for me up to this point and why when we finally get to the reveal that there is a magic dagger and we start getting some special effects it almost threw me out of the movie for a moment i was like well what, what am i watching here this doesn't seem like the same thing i've been building up to but it makes sense and it does help the movie move forward and it kind of brought me back in once we finally get to this point another comparative that is not favorable to mina Yeesh. I mean, I may not love Kira Knightley, but she had a feistiness that she could play with the boys and she had fun in that part and I think played well. It made it feel like a trio. You really felt like any one of those characters could be the center focus at any given moment. And here, when we meet the love interest, yikes. Yeah, who... Is this actress? I looked her up. She's made no impact on me in anything she's ever done. Yeah, and more importantly, in this movie, you barely pay attention to her. Honest to God. She's supposed to be a protectress of the secret and of the dagger. And I think she's supposed to be the same kind of haughty Kira Knightley later when they escape together. But there's not one moment of charm or wit or fun that she displays. Who would want to marry her? I guess if you have nine wives. But yeah. She would be your ninth. They do mention that. Because after they take over the city, Tuss, who is in line to be the next king, wants to form a union and marry Tamina. And somebody says, you have enough wives already, which drove home for me the fact that there's not going to be any such thing as romance. If we're supposed to believe that Destan and Tamina have this great relationship, she'll be the first of his harem. <laughs> well, yeah, it's almost an attribute, a Western attribute that is hoisted upon Destan at this point by the movie. He's more like we would think of traditional marriage in America because he has not gotten to the age of having a harem yet, basically at this point by default. Right. 
Yeah, and, you know, it's going to play well for the West where polygamy and Islam, all of these things, they're skirting over it. They talk about religion here or there, but they really want to whitewash this culture, quite literally, with Jake in the title role, so that we're not thinking about different cultures or customs. This is basically the story of a boy that's going to fall in love like Aladdin. But I ain't in love. I ain't in love with either one of them. And as far as this murder plot goes, it's kind of intriguing. I mean, I like murder mysteries, but we guess who's behind it. And more importantly, if Ben Kingsley is sharing the crown, wouldn't just killing the king now in the present day be enough for him to sit on the throne? No, I think it, you know, I look at England, that's my knowledge of royalty. You follow the line, the king's eldest son is the next king, not the king's brother or anything else. And even though they are kind of sharing the crown, the crown only actually goes on one head and Kingsley wished it was his. I guess he'd been too long in the shadows. Somehow he found out about this knife. But again, I don't understand why he had to kill the king. He could have just been like, oh, Destan, that's a nice dagger. Can I borrow that for a while? And turned back time with nobody ever knowing. The entire fact that he chooses this weird poison robe, which admittedly, I thought Tuss was in on it. I knew Kingsley was bad, especially when Kingsley's all like, Oh, they're going to arm our enemies. Uh, We must attack them, even though the king doesn't want to. Instantly, Kingsley's bad. But because Tuss says to Stan, you forgot a gift for our father. Give him this robe. And this robe is somehow poisoned that's like full of acid. (laughs) Oh, this is a classic, though. Do you ever read Medea? This is uh, from Greek myth. There's a very famous scene where a woman puts on a robe that Medea has laced with. The whole gimmick of it is once you have it lying down, nothing's trickling. But once it's upright, sand is like trickling down into other sand and it turns into a poison that way. It's a chemical mixture that's happening as you're wearing it that lights fire. Oh, about two minutes into you walking around in it. Okay, I did not know that. And it's actually a real thing in history, too. There was an assassination attempt on, I believe, Queen Elizabeth, that was, I want to say. My wife told me about this. And the reason they found out is because one of the handmaidens actually illegally tried on one of the queen's gowns that had been poisoned, and she's the one who died from it. Well, the reason why they have to kill is because it makes it more interesting. I don't know why they would instantly conclude that Destan, who has been with this family now for 15 years, would have done this so publicly. Like, I mean, handing him the gift, oh, that means that he did it? Well, it probably means he didn't do it and he was set up, would be what my conclusion is. But it gets things going and it gets people jumping out windows and running around again. To my point earlier, this would mean there's two brothers ahead of him that would be more suspect than Destan at this point. Yeah, I just thought Tuss was really power hungry and he wanted to be the king, kill the father. That's, you know, Shakespearean. We've seen that time and time again in different movies. And so I thought Tuss and Kingsley were plotting, yet here it's just Kingsley doing all of it. That was the big shock to me is that the neither other brother was in on this. And then when Destan runs, he takes Tamina. Why? 
Yeah, that must have gotten left on the editing room floor. But we've had almost no scenes of them together. And he's just basically escorted her into meeting his father seconds before he dies. I think she's taking him away is the way that it reads to me. Yeah, right. The first time I watched it, I thought she was just smitten with him. Like, oh, look at this hottie back there. But it's the fact that she caught that he has the dagger in his belt. Right. So she was taking him out of that situation because she was protecting the dagger. Not to mention they've been taken over and she's not happy about being occupied at all. And so she wants to escape this marriage and all of these people. But yes, she needs to stay close to Dastan because Dastan has the magic MacGuffin that we'll be chasing around for the rest of the movie. It's not long before they get a little bit away and he accidentally discovers pushing the gem in the hilt of the handle creates a lawnmower man looking CGI nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) Did you actually reference lawnmower man? I did because I thought of nothing but I am God here. When we see CGI Jake Gyllenhaal's face that looks nothing like Jake Gyllenhaal, it looked more like Jeff Fahey. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Now this right here could actually be a cool video game conceit. You know, instead of actually hitting the reset button, you walk into a situation, you get killed, but you have a few opportunities to reset that scene, come back and figure out, okay, this guy's coming at me from over here. This guy's coming up from over there. That'd be kind of fun to play in a game, but in a movie? It's the Omega-13 from Galaxy Quest, right? You can correct one single mistake. Right. It's a good aggression tool, right? Someone pisses you off, you can be like, I'm just going to stab you in the face for 55 seconds, and then I'll hit the button and be like, (laughs) okay, sure, whatever you want. You've done that to me, haven't you? (laughs) If only I had this device. (laughs) But it's a little silly, but it, it what it did for me was it reminded me that this was based on a video game. And maybe if I was watching it in the theater in 2010, I wouldn't know that. But given that we're a part of this franchise, the arcade here, I'm looking for those little details. And yeah, they built the reset button into this so that you can actually fail. We have a hero that more than once trips over his own feet, doesn't do the right thing, gets stabbed and dies. That makes it a little more interesting. It also makes it Like, we can solve any problem that befalls us and takes away tension, which there's very little anyway. Except the dagger runs out of batteries. When you travel back in time, the one thing that doesn't happen is the dagger returning to its old state. It uses sand. When you hit the buttons, like sand through the dagger, so are the days of our lives. The sand pours out, so it only can hold enough sand for a minute. And in this very first scene, he uses up all the sand. Now... The princess, in her cleavage, might have enough for a few more seconds there in a vial, but the thing's low on batteries the entire movie, so they don't actually travel through time all that much. No, they actually only use this device when we first learn about it, where he kind of wastes it, not knowing what it is, and then one other time halfway through, and it's actually kind of useful to the situation they find themselves in. But I suppose an entire movie of just kind (laughs) of... three-second redos is not really going to be all that satisfying either. So I I guess it's fine that they've set a time limit and a depleted battery on this track. Yeah, I don't want to watch the butterfly effect again, I'll admit. But I just was a little bit shocked Magic came into it this early. I guess you're right, Stuart. When this movie came out in 2010, I didn't associate it with video games. I really didn't. And when I sat down to watch it this time, I thought I was watching Sahara. I really didn't know a whole lot about this movie at all. And so the fact that they added this magical element 
about a third of the way into the movie shocked me that it was so soon. But then this movie kind of is going to stumble around for another hour and not really do much of anything because they're then abducted by my favorite character in the entire movie, Sheik Amar, played by Alfred Molina, a libertarian Sheik. I love him. He's created an entire land of crime to not pay taxes to the government that's going to misappropriate it for expensive clothes. (laughs) (laughs) And they have the libertarian dental plan as well, I can see. I think you know you've gotten off track when you're at ostrich races, right? That's, you know that whatever we wrote, like, they need to have that button on their pen so they can, like, go back and erase all of that and start again. Because we don't want, at no point in the video game are we going to stand for characters riding ostrich. We are not going to do this as gameplay But for some reason, they can think of nothing better to do in the middle of this movie than have the princess be a bar wench and to have our prince of Persia watching birds run around. The ostriches are cute, though. I love an ostrich race. (laughs) I honestly (laughs) thought, though, I guess I was in some kind of weird Mario land. I thought for sure Jake Gyllenhaal was going to ride an ostrich before this movie was done. Yeah, and Johnny Depp would have done it, right? I mean, that's the difference, is Johnny Depp wouldn't have worried about looking silly. He would have embraced that. Gyllenhaal is just not getting into the mud. You know, he's mostly still wants to look studly. He never does anything too embarrassing. But I think the real thing that's going on here is that Destan still doesn't know the full story of this dagger. It's just basically kind of been a cat and mouse game between him and Tamina, and her not giving up all the information or why it needs to be protected. And in the meantime, one or both of them or the knife is being abducted over and over and over again throughout the middle part of this movie. Yeah, they don't have a good sense about what the story should be. I think it's pretty clear, and we've seen this time and again with video game movies. We know the characters that are in it. We know that we need to hit certain scenes, certain beats, uh, have a detail or an artifact that needs to pop up. But what the story needs to be and how to develop them as characters seems to be the thing that these projects always trip over again and again. And even though they have all of this money, Disney is doing no better than when they were making Mario. But you can't blame the video gameness. If anything, the problem here is they got away from the video games. Having played six of the seven Prince of Persia games by this point, I have a feel for what that gameplay is, and none of it is, hell, I gotta run for these ostriches. It's all, I need to jump on the roof, I need to use my knife to slide down this banister. They get all of that out of the way during the city invasion. He does a little bit more of it later, but not much. The rest of this is very land-based, The problem is, we just have an aimless action movie. The fact that it's video game is completely tangential. A poorly written action film is a poorly written action film. They're not taking something from the game and doing it poorly. They're just doing things poorly. No, they're taking it from the headlines. I wondered about this. When the movie came out, I was like... Persia is Iran, and that means Iraq to a lot of people, and a lot of Americans have very strong feelings about that war and that area of the world. How are we going to have escapist entertainment? And the answer is, they're going to 
Bring that up here. Ben Kingsley is playing Dick Cheney. Under false pretenses, he presents the idea that there are weapons of mass destruction in the city. Swords. Yeah, admittedly. (laughs) But we invade under the wrong idea. And this whole thing is about turning back time before we do that. I'm right there with you, Stuart. And I'm sitting there asking myself these questions, too. I'm like, are these modern day allegories for the, the actual Iraq war? Yeah. And if so, why are they five years too late? Like, why is this happening in 2010 is my question. I mean, you're going to look at every movie of that decade. I mean, it's coming on the tail end, but it wouldn't be the last one. Star Trek Into Darkness did it as well. I mean, I think you still could make that movie. I mean, 9-11 was a profound moment in American history. It was humbling. And I think you see it rippled throughout our story even now. But it's not that... I'm shocked that they would bring it up in 2010. It's I'm shocked that they would bring it up and have no answers. It's, well, okay, so what does that leave for Dastan to do, is I guess the answer. I get that you've painted your villain. He is obviously got the burned hands. You know, we have this scene where he, Dastan goes back for the funeral and hasn't confirmed what we suspected for an hour. Ben Kingsley is evil. I guess he only saw Gandhi or Schindler's List. He's like, no, Ben Kingsley's a good guy. He could never play a bad guy every other movie he's a bad guy and he's a bad guy in this one and now he's got the burned hands and so we get it we get the whole idea about how he tricked them into invading the city and we know his plot and now it's just a a matter of passing the dagger around literally it's just a baton that goes from boring scene after boring scene it'd be one thing if this action was pulse quickening or if these actors were doing something entertaining but really it's just dry as dry as the desert sand scene after scene of these people passing the knife around i honestly was sitting there wondering what is the point i knew alfred molina's people would come back into it at the end but when they go in and are taken and alfred molina suddenly like i know who you are and i'm gonna turn you in for the reward and then they just escape I'm like, this didn't aid the plot at all. This was a necessity that we need to introduce these characters because later on they're going to be allies against the bad people. Then he goes back to see his uncle in the city and reveal what we all know. I mean, this was no I am your father moment when you find out that... (laughs) I am your evil uncle. Yeah. And now he's going to hire Blackwater. There's the all these Hassassins or Hassansons. I'm really not sure how to say it, but it's some kind of iteration of Hassan and Assassin. These guys in black, they're going to jump out of clouds, and they're really the bad guys for much of the second half of this movie. Oh, we get a really cool training montage as Ben Kingsley walks by their training grounds. <laughs> Yeah, they can turn into snakes. They got magic powers. They're kind of like the pirates that are also zombies. Again, pirates had a supernatural element to it as well that came in around the same time. But compare the two side by side. There's no way that these guys, the black turbans, are anywhere as compelling as all those fun zombie pirates. You got to give a lot of credit to Gore Verbinski and Johnny Depp. I'm not sure that anything was better back in 2003 other than they had those two assets who knew how to make it fun. And these guys know how to do it, but they don't know how to make it fun. Is that what was happening? Were they actually turning into snakes or were they just snake charmers who could control them? I thought they were snakes or some of them were snakes. I, you know... I thought they were controlling the snakes and hung out with snakes. I never got body transformation, but they said they could see the future. But obviously they can't see that they're all going to die. I got really pulled out of it because Jake Gyllenhaal, first of all, 
we find out neither of his brothers are evil. And yes, instantly they both die. That's like a funny thing to me. It's, no, they don't both die right away. They both die as soon as they do believe he's innocent. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you didn't do it. Oh, my God. I'm yeah. Both of them like that. Because <laughs> it was a shock to me that neither brother was in on the plot. But then... I'm completely pulled out because we recently reviewed Black Panther, and I really think that this clan of knife throwers is the M'Baku. And I'm like, M'Baku? M'Baku was the guy in Black Panther who challenged him and was the leader of the ape tribe? (laughs) No, this is the M'Baka. Not the Mbaku. <laughs> but I was really thinking, does this have some kind of African Black Panther crossover thing going on? <laughs> well, you're talking about this token Black character who is going to fulfill the cliche of he must die doing something heroic for the white people. <laughs> yeah, that's. but he's apparently one of many, but we only see him. Uh, yeah, he's part of the Pirates of Arabia, is what I'm calling them. They're, he's part of Alfred Molina's troop. And again, just not as detailed, not as compelling, not funny at all. But he has one scene where he's going to avoid a bunch of darts and have a knife fight so that he can get the dagger back at one point and throw it out the window real good before he falls over dead. But it's pretty mediocre action scenes of a dagger passing between the characters. And absolutely no romantic chemistry between the these two leads. Mm-hmm. Zero. I don't want to see them together. I don't get even why he cares. And one of the times he turns back time, it's because she has cut him across his chest and killed him and he has to resurrect. And I don't see why suddenly I get it from an action movie cliche. We're thrust together. And so we must have each other's back. And then we're going to realize we're not that different. And I love a street urchin. But this movie, they just are oil and water to me. I do not want to see them together. When she gets to the place where she's going to bury the dagger and sacrifice her life, I'm like, okay. Yeah, well, here's the thing, (laughs) is that Kira Knightley and Johnny Depp did have that flirtatious moment drinking a little rum marooned on an island, but by and large, they were never going to go there. And here, the script is going to ask what is supposed to be the same scenario to go there. And you either have to have actors that can work it out for themselves and do it in the movie where the script is not telling them what to do. Or yeah, you just got to have a third wheel that would make it a a romantic triangle instead of, yeah, just two. Yeah, sure. And neither one of these actors apparently are capable of showing the proper emotions on their face. You know, the, the subtleties, you know, you keep bringing up, Kira Knightley and Johnny Depp. There wasn't an overtly spoken thing there. It was done with some subtle looks back and forth. And here, none of that's happening. These two look at each other either like they're dumbfounded or they're suspicious of one another at every moment. So when they get to the end, and it's really hazy to me, and it's honestly, it took me three tries to get through this movie. Not that it's that bad, it's just that dull. And by the third time I'm watching it, it's a little hazy to me when he finally gets back and is running from Kingsley, and they all end up at this magic hourglass where the sand is all stockpiled. Yeah, under the ground so that they can have some underground levels for the video game. (laughs) Some sand surfing for action. Mm Mm-hmm. That was actually a pretty cool scene when he was riding down the waterfall of sand and avoiding the stuff crashing on him. But when Tamina falls to her death, I'm like, she's not dead. You don't do that in a movie. We're going to have the time turned back. The most deadly thing about this movie is its lack of suspense in any given moment because you just see all these things coming so soon. 
Yeah, I, I agree. No one's crying about a princess that just fell down a well when she fell off a giant hourglass containing millions and millions of grains of sands that could erase that. And that's the problem. Once you introduce the idea that you can erase everything that's done, there's just nothing. Yeah, all his friends have been killed. His brothers have been killed. His childhood friend Biz has been killed. The king's been killed. She's been killed. You really think that this is going to be how they leave the movie? I actually thought that the king was dead. And that made me sad because when the king dies, he looks up at Tastan and was like, why? And it it actually impacted me that the king died thinking that this person he brought in off the street and had treated so well betrayed him at the end. And I'm like, that's a harsh thing. But I because the dagger had that one minute limit, I never thought they'd bring back either brother. I thought they'd bring back Tamina. But I never thought they would reset the entire movie to the point <laughs> that it's all just a bleeping dream. Yeah, so you're right. At this point... Nothing is left to suspense. And I guess the issue I'm going to have at this point is the one rule that she set down was basically if that dagger pierces that stone or that sand, it's going to unleash the wrath of the gods that originally created it. Right. Well, he did that. He pierced it and that did not happen. Yeah. What we were told is in this myth is that all of the sand was a giant sand storm that the gods were going to use to wipe out humanity i think everything and then because some child said don't do it they made her the keeper of a dagger not a good idea usually you don't usually give small girls giant knives but they did and so the idea was that you just keep the sand contained maybe you could do a little sprinkle here and there but if you unleash all this sand it's just going to bury everything again and i don't know why that didn't happen i do not know why we wind up just standing conveniently at the place where Jake Gyllenhaal's Destan can now say, I'm going to fulfill my father's wish and not allow the city to be conquered by us. It's a loophole in the Sands of Time doctrine that the gods did not foresee, I guess. And they did the one thing wrong. You keep mentioning pirates, 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 but what I'm looking here and seeing is Indiana Jones. You've got tombs and magical artifacts and i'm just seeing basically an indiana jones ripoff and the thing i love about every indiana jones film is the irony at the end of the bad guy gets what he wants and it kills him they open the ark it kills the nazis he gets to the holy grails he picks the wrong cup and he drinks it and he dies instantly the shakara stone's a little bit iffy but every bad guy is killed by what they sought Ben Kingsley should have done something with those sands and those demons kill him and then Jake Gyllenhaal figures out a way. The fact that nothing has a consequence, we're going to go back to the invasion of the city where they're all celebrating and now Dastan is just like, hey everybody! Look, it's Ben Kingsley. We should have known he was evil. <laughs> <laughs> right. And on top of erasing the entire movie, it just erases Ben Kingsley's motivation. Like, why at this point, this version of Ben Kingsley would be upset by the accusation and not just keep his eye on the prize, which, Scarney, you've pointed out, just quietly go get the dagger. You don't have to take over the city. You have the assassins that you've hired. Maybe hire one of them to sneak in and grab it. Yeah. You know, your plan has not been foiled because Jake Gyllenhaal called you out. Just wait a few days and come back around. But no, he's got to pull out a sword, 
because he's so upset at being called out that he's going to give up his whole plan here. I think what we're saying, or at least the way I'm feeling it, is that this thing got weaker as it went along and not stronger. You know, all of these kind of adventure movies can lose their way and maybe you are compelled, your eyes drawn to some actors and not others, but you want to build up to something big. And this movie is just, there's nothing there. Its best scene is the invasion of the city at the beginning. Right. And my interest, like sands through the hourglass, drifted away (laughs) the longer the movie went on. And again, if the (laughs) fantasy is imagine if we didn't invade Iraq and we kept our eyes on the real enemy and went off and went after Osama bin Laden. Again, that is just bigger than this little adventure film can take on. They bring this up as if they have something to say about that. And the fact of the matter is that that is... Just an empty sandbox they cannot fill. But there, it does end with the couple together. He's going to get married to Tamina because destiny, right? They're just destined to do it. Oh, brother. The fact that she is even entertaining this idea of marrying her conqueror <laughs> when they never should have invaded in the first place. Yeah, right. Now she'll respect him as a conqueror because he only killed a few people at the gate and then stopped. Is a little strange. It would have made a little more sense if Tamina had some knowledge of yes. what happened or a wink of, yes, I know what you we just went through. Maybe she does, and the actress didn't convey it or Portray it, yeah. (laughs) She's got some kind of mystical, you know, she is sort of the continuation of the little girl. She's not the very same little girl that first was the guardian of the sand, but I think she knows more about history and time than she's letting on, or or maybe not. But yes, it would have been nice to know that she wasn't just being a trophy wife, literally. Yeah, it's just such a downer ending (laughs) that they come to i just don't want to see these two get together i would have been happier if they just made this like james bond and he romanced her and he remembered romancing her and they parted ways that are like we're really sorry we invaded your country here take some of our gold we're gonna be friends and we're just gonna leave you be and next movie jake can find another woman and not try to do this the other movie that kept coming to mind for me with this was Brendan Fraser's Mummy Trilogy. And we do not need Rachel Wise in this. We could just have Jake Gyllenhaal go city to city and have different adventures there. But no, they decide they're going to hammer home this romance. Isn't it ironic? I mean, it is ironic that the woman who sang ironic now sings as a love song for the closer of this movie i remain and we never saw alanis morissette again after this film (laughs) that song is painful i listened to it twice it sounds like every other alanis morissette song but the producer decided to put some stereotypical finger symbols and sitars in it yeah, I mean, you know, I remain. It's not going to stay in your head. And Arnie, you joked about it at the top, but I don't know if it, what it says about this movie that I was kind of surprised that they didn't close with If I Could Turn Back Time by Cher. Like, <laughs> Cher would have nothing to do with this movie. Uh, but the song was old enough at this point, she might as well just got some royalties off of it. <laughs> Again, I never saw Alanis again. I never saw Gemma Arterton again. I certainly didn't see a sequel to this. I don't even think they made many Prince of Persia video games after this. I think it wiped out the entire love of this whole Prince of Persia thing. 
Actually, it's Assassin's Creed that caused it. They would have made more Prince of Persia games, except Assassin's Creed has sold so crazy. They've just had their entire dev team doing nothing but Assassin's Creed for a long time. Well, we'll have to wait till we get to that movie, I think, another year. There's still a lot more video games before we get there. (laughs) Well, Justin Stewart, do you wish you could turn back time and never watch Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time? Justin. (laughs) You know, one year for Christmas, I remember opening up a present and I opened up and the box was a Super Nintendo box. I'm like, oh, yes, look at this. It's beautiful. And then I opened it up and my grandma had packed some socks and underwear in there as a present. (laughs) Kind of what this movie feels like, right? You know, it looks gorgeous. Mm -hmm. The posters look nice. It's got all the elements on the outside of something that should be enjoyable. And after sitting down and watching this, I can't say it's horrible. It's messy. It's boring. It doesn't really go anywhere, but it still looks good. And after watching it, it almost feels like I did get zapped with the the forget-me-not button. I mean, it's almost like for Men in Black, that device, you know? It's like, oh, did I watch this movie even? So, Stuart, you brought it up quite a bit. There's so many comparisons to what they could have done or what they were trying to do with Pirates of the Caribbean. And it never even got close to that bar just because it needs a Johnny Depp's charisma to carry something like this. And JK, he's he's a nice guy, I'm sure, but he's just not the guy to bring that to the screen here. So yeah, for me, it's if you're curious, give it a watch, but it's it's a mild not recommend for me. Stuart. Yeah, I wouldn't turn back time and not see it. I think there is a movie here to be made. I like the game. It's got a very cinematic origin, and there have been many movies in this style that have worked. I think somebody could have done it. I would turn back the hands of time and just redo everything. New director, new star, no Disney. Honestly, if Disney weren't trying to chase Pirates of the Caribbean, and this was maybe Ridley Scott trying to follow up Gladiator, you might have had something. But in this package, in this way, coming as a Disney film after the Iraq War, no, everything feels tepid, half-hearted. Everything but the budget feels like they were barely trying. They spent a lot of money on this movie, and yet I can't see that they were trying to accomplish anything except not to offend people. And what you get is a beautiful-looking nothing of a movie that has no aftertaste. You won't even remember that you saw it, and that's got to be a not recommend. Three for three, because again, like sand pouring, my memories of this movie are pouring out of my brain. Legitimately, I sat down to watch this movie, and yes, I was sick and on narcotics, but I decided I just was going to go to sleep instead of finish. The next day, I started over again, and then I got distracted, and I stopped, like, 20 minutes in. And the third night, I sat down and watched this entire thing, and by the end, it's like, why did I bother doing this? It's just not a horrible movie. It is not the worst movie in this video game series by a stretch. It is just so watered down and so nothing of a film it's completely inadequate it does nothing special it has no great performance except for alfred molina who is completely in the wrong movie though he's acting like he's in modern times but he's supposed to be in negative five bc persia (laughs) 
there's nothing to hate about this movie, but there's nothing to like about it either, other than it did get me to play the reboot of the game. I wish rather than spending the three and a half hours I spent watching this movie, that I'd spent that three and a half hours playing the games. That middle game especially starts off as like this horror game with wolf people and this scantily clad witchblade woman on a boat. It really is kind of atmospheric and far better than anything I saw in this movie. It's a not recommend for the movie and a not recommend for those 80s and 90s games, but it's a recommend for the 21st century games. Yeah, all in on a positive. I did really like Forgotten Sands and what little I played of that 2000 trilogy. A lot more fun. It seemed like there was a lot more story. It seemed like you would go to more exciting places playing that game or even watching someone play that game. And hey, you know, if for no other reason, it, it brought me back to playing that original Prince of Persia that I didn't realize how much time I spent playing back in the day. <laughs> you know, going back and going through a few levels, I'm like, wow, I spent a lot of time playing this game in, in ninth grade. Well, I know a game that Arnie spent a whole lot of time playing, and we're covering the movie next week, finally. Wing Commander. How many times have you teased this? Almost as much as Real Genius. Almost, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it just was a watershed moment for me in so many ways. This movie influenced the course of my life. Wow. I don't even exaggerate. I will explain it all next week. It has to be great then. I can't wait. I'm on the edge of my seat. So, Justin Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next week, game over. And I think this movie ate my quarter and didn't give me anything. <laughs> what he saw, the king adopted the boy Dastan into his family. A son with no royal blood and no eye on his throne. But perhaps there was something else at work that day. Something beyond simple understanding. The day a boy from the unlikeliest of places became a prince of Persia. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the show. <laughs> That's a good story. It's well told. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. We can't stop. Well, perhaps you can't, but we can. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other video game movies, including... Resident Evil, The King of Kong, The Wizard, Super Mario Brothers, Street Fighter, Double Dragon, Tomb Raider, Rampage, and more. There'll be no doubt of your courage, Nesta. You're not ready for this. Also at our site, you can find hundreds of other movie reviews, including Star Wars, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Independence Day, The Avengers Films, Back to the Future, Batman, Superman, The Fast and the Furious, and more. See what you were looking for, Prince. Do you want to continue? Insert money now to keep playing, now playing. You don't understand what's at stake! Now Playing Podcast is a show without any sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to keep Now Playing operating. Who pays for it all, eh? The small businessman! You can donate to the show and, as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. 
Over 150 bonus movie reviews are available to choose from on the Now Playing Podbean page, including Alien, Night of the Living Dead, Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Lord of the Rings, Psycho, Troll, and more. You owe me a gift. Homage. Find a full list of available bonus shows at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. And the tax collectors steer clear of me and my customers. Everybody's happy. (laughs) You can also join the Now Playing patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. Find the details on our website. I traded my own mother for that kind of gold. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss these movies and games with other listeners. We'll march into her palace and see for ourselves. If you want even more Now Playing reviews, place your order now for the first Now Playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. Get reviews of 125 films our hosts love. You can order the book by clicking the banner at the top of our homepage. Don't just stand there, run, don't walk! You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. I hardly think we know each other well enough for that, but I look forward to the day that we do. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. I know you're eager to wear the crown, but trust me when I tell you, you're not yet ready. Now Playing Credits, read by Brock. My friend, has anyone ever told you that you talk too much? Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. Strong. Honoring the rule of law. We are not savages. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. He's afraid of what I might say and who I might tell. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Venganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the express written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. This is a matter for the gods, not man! Your gods, not mine! Now Playing is the Venganza Media production, copyright 2018, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Next time, you... Nineteen eighty nine. See a quarter pounder with some cheese, a hamburger, a cheeseburger, a happy meal. <laughs> uh, here we are, reminiscing about a song, reminiscing about the past. <laughs> yes. Is it Snow White who was left home to clean while the, yeah. uh, the Snow White type situation where the real royal blood Cinderella? Is this Johnny Depp or is this? And I can't even remember his name now. Who's the elf? Will Ferrell? No. Uh, <laughs> the, in the movie Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, the little guy. Well, 
I mean, no, he was the elfin Lord of the Rings, and then he was the star oh, of. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Yeah. Little person. No, no. Is he? Okay. Okay. I'll take it again. Arnie, Arnie goes right to. Yeah, I'm not saying dwarf. 